Michael. <clears throat> well, thank you, Eric, and and thanks for the welcome and, a, and another opportunity to to I guess come and share some of my ramblings. Um, I guess it's a it's it's a bit different in this sort of format, isn't it? I've I've, I've participated in in Zoom sort of catch ups and meetings and things, but to actually be presenting something in this format is is a it's quite a bit different for me. Um, so we'll see how we go. Um, so what I've got to share this morning flows directly on from um, the sermon presented across the Mosaic services last week. Um, so I don't know whether whether you um, and whether each of you got got the opportunity to to listen in on the services last week, um, but Andy Robb spoke on the commissioning of Barnabas and Paul for the for the work that basically begins in earnest with with this with this focus passage. Um, so yeah, I, I hope you had an opportunity to listen, or maybe you might might um, go on the the Mosaic website and and have a bit of a listen. I, I found it really helpful. Um, and in fact, the key point I took away from last week was the importance of resting in God's leadership and and God you know, God's guiding guiding and um, and just just taking time out of a busy schedule for to be quiet in in that sort of space um, so that we don't go ahead of God or go in in another direction away from God. So, I guess it's against that kind of background that I want to want to share today. Um, and in some ways, what I've got to share is a little bit exploratory, and it boils down to this question. What if Elamas, or Bar-Jesus, as we might want to call him, serves as a case study of what can go wrong if we turn away from God's purposes or try to run ahead of him? So with, with all that has been going on amongst the believers um, to this point, it can be easy to forget that Christianity is still pretty new. I guess not really, because God has been at work for eternity and, and he has not changed. But I guess the followers are still kind of wrestling with the fact that uh, this Jewish carpenter from a, from a little Jewish, in the Jewish backwater is actually the Messiah. So we join the story probably a little under 20 years after Jesus' ascension and around 10 to 15 years after Paul's conversion, which I guess to, to me seems like a relatively short time. Um, but it's also quite a long time, in, in, I suppose, from Paul's perspective to effectively prepare for ministry. But interestingly, at this point, it's also about 20 years before Christianity formally split away from Judaism. Um, of course, there have been tensions between the, the, you know, if we want to call them two groups that have been, been tensions between them. But I wonder perhaps whether we need to see the tensions as primarily internal rather than between two disparate groups. Um, so it's at this quite odd point in the, in the church's history that Paul and Barnabas sailed to Cyprus. And I think this is actually a fascinating, um, passage in terms of uh, its example of, of how much the Bible writers don't say, how much they leave unsaid. Um, we read the passage and, and almost imagine that Barnabas and Paul are holding forth in synagogues one day and confronting a sorcerer the next. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, you know, just, and then they're continuing on on their, on their whirlwind tour. 
Um, but of course, that's not really true. It's about 180 kilometres from Salamis to Paphos. And of course, they didn't have the motorised transport that we have. Um, the trip would have been probably at least 40 hours on foot, assuming that they maintained a steady pace and followed a fairly direct route. So clearly, this is not a trip to be taken in one go. And the text seems to suggest something other than a straight line journey, because it says that they travelled all around the island. I would guess that Paul and Barnabas's time on Cyprus included probably at least two weeks of preaching and sundry activities. We also read in Acts 4, verse 36, that Barnabas was actually from Cyprus. So I wonder whether there was a bit of visiting of family and friends along the way as well. All of this basically serves to highlight that everything would have taken a fair bit longer than we imagine. And that in some places there may be somewhat more to the story. Um, I noticed that the first item on Paul and Barnabas's itinerary, at least as recorded by Luke, is to preach in the synagogues. And, and I find it interesting because Paul is often thought of as the missionary to the Gentiles. But here he is preaching in the Jewish synagogues. Is there more to this story? As I noted earlier, Christianity had not yet split away from Judaism. And whilst there were tensions, I think it would be a mistake to draw a big, stark line between the new believers and other Jews. In this context, perhaps Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue to receive fellowship and encouragement from, from their own community. Perhaps a, a little bit more time to, to rest and to reflect. Perhaps there were Christians already living in Cyprus at the time, and Paul and Barnabas went with the purpose of providing instruction and encouragement to their fellow believers. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas simply wanted some time to pray and to rest, to rest a little more in God's leading and provision. Yet we're simply told that, we, that they preached. I wonder whether their message, whether they were speaking to fellow believers or not, included something like this. Stay grounded in God and in his scriptures, in fellowship and in wise instruction, lest you turn away or try to run ahead of God. In thinking about this, let's not create a false dichotomy in, in events and places. I do not think it is as simple as saying that they preached in Salamis and confronted sorceress and Paphos, but rather they likely had a combination of all these kinds of experiences all over the island. In this vein, please keep in mind that they likely preached in Paphos. Notwithstanding there is likely more to the story, let's follow Luke's leading and jump ahead to Paphos. I don't know about you, but sorcery is entirely outside my own day-to-day experience. And to be honest, I don't see a lot of prophecy or false prophecy for that matter. And do I really know how to tell the difference? I think it's at least partly the unknown that leads us to cast Alamas aside and just, I guess, brand him as the bad guy. But let's not be quite so hasty. Whilst Luke omits large parts of this story, let's consider what he does say. Elamas is not introduced to us simply as a sorcerer, but as a Jewish sorcerer. This is someone who, 
whether or not he was active in the synagogue at the time, was in some way associated with the Jewish community. We're told nothing of his backstory, but I want to give Alamas the benefit of the doubt and say that he didn't start out with the goal of living a life of deceit and fraud. I wonder instead if he began with the words of the prophet Joel ringing in his ears, those words that echo in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Perhaps he entered the court of a Roman governor, not with the intention of opposing the God of Israel, but perhaps with more noble ambitions. Perhaps he misunderstood the point of Joel's words, but nevertheless wanted to bring a sense of wonder to that Roman court. If Elamas did, in fact, begin with good and worthy intentions, what then happened to turn him into a liar and a fraud who would pervert the right ways of the Lord? Did some trauma in his life lead him to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness? Did the law of wealth and power and influence lead him to cast aside his original intentions? Did he get impatient in pursuing his original good intentions and so simply cast aside God's purpose and God's timing? Was LMS, perhaps, a case study of Paul's exhortation to remain grounded in God, in fellowship and in wise instruction? I like the end of this passage. I, I, I like that, the, that a Roman governor was persuaded to follow Christ. But let's not link his conversion simply to LMS being made blind. The governor was amazed, not at signs and wonders, but at the teaching about the Lord. I'm not sure that the LMS incident itself constitutes teaching about the Lord. So I'm guessing that there, there was actually, notwithstanding LMS's efforts to the contrary, that there was actually some, some preaching going on. The governor wanted to hear the word of the Lord, and I think he heard it. Meanwhile, Elamas, now blind, was looking for someone to leave him. This man who wanted others to look to him was now looking for someone to lead him. I wonder if we see people who remind us of LMS. Do we sometimes recognize something of LMS within ourselves? Do we recognize the story of someone who begins with good and worthy intentions? Maybe who is charismatic or is talented or gifted in some way. Perhaps who is driven by nothing other than zeal for their, for the goals that they have, that they set out to pursue. But what happens when it all comes crashing down? What, what happens when it all comes crashing down for you? What happens when it all comes crashing down for me? Uh, we don't know if, if Elamath turned his life around. 
We don't know. But in some ways, it sounds a little bit like Paul's own story to me. Paul, why are you persecuting me? LMS, why are you perverting the right ways of the Lord? And in both stories, we find a once proud and influential man now needing someone to lead them. The movie The Greatest Showman, I think, provides something a little bit like an LMS story. Uh, setting aside the far more complex and possibly less satisfying story of the historical P.T. Barnum, the movie tells a satisfying story of a man who began with worthy intentions, was lured by wealth and power, and was then drawn back to his original purpose. In that context, I like these words from the movie, which the Barnum character actually sings at the end. I won't sing them. But the, the words are these. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Tonight. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now on. From now on. Now, if I can depart from the script for a little bit, um, he is inspired to sing this song by the the very people who he had cast aside in his pursuit of wealth and power and influence. And it's those people who get around him at its lowest point who inspire inspire him to sing their song. They get him around around him and, and call him family. At the end of that song, those very same people are celebrating him coming back. But they but their words are very interesting. They sing And we will come back home. We will come back home, home again. He was blocking those people from living the life they were, that they intended to live, that they were supposed to live. LMS tried to block the governor from living the life and hearing the story that he wanted to hear. I guess if you've seen that movie now, now that's a bit of an earworm for you and, and you're welcome. Um, now these words may raise the question, what's my from now on? For Paul and for Elamas, it was blindness and the associated need to depend on someone else to perceive the world around them with something other than physical sight. The story, as Luke tells it, is quite stark, but what if our own story is far more subtle? What if we get distracted and don't even realise how far we've departed from our original good intentions? Mm -hmm. Perhaps we need to hear again and again and again the full, wonderful, groundbreaking, unsettling truth of a God who came for the outcasts. And not only that, but a God who called those same outcasts to minister to others, to open the way for others to live their best life. This truth, however unsettling, is the quiet gospel. Sure, we need to speak it out loud, but let's not forget that we desperately need to hear it, to really hear it in our own minds, in our own hearts, in all of our being. 
it is this gospel that reminds us that only God is God and that everything we have, everything I have, is his. We don't need to cast aside our passions. We don't need to cast aside our good and worthy intentions far from it. But are we ready to bring all of that to Jesus? Are we ready to bring all of that to Jesus' feet? And will we learn from the quiet Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who way back in Acts chapter 2 laid everything he had before the apostles? Thank you.